Hi, and welcome to Bad Decisions. The podcast that helps us understand why we choose what we choose. Why we think what we think. How to exploit this stuff for fun and commercial gain. I'm Dr. Mel Weinberg. I'm a performance psychologist. You also normally say ethically at the end of that intro, but I guess you've thrown caution to the wind. Given up. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Dan Wanhart, co-founder of Hard Hat. Ethically. So Mel. Yes. <laughs> so I'm so suspicious. So patronizing. <laughs> so hey, I've been thinking, not meant to date the shows, but like we're gonna date the show and say, look, we're heading into the end of 2020. It's been it's been quite the year. It's been a different year. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, interesting, different. And you know, as I cast my mind to 2021, one of the things that I think about that might sit right in that sweet spot between psychology and commerce is this weird phenomenon of people making all sorts of resolutions about what they're going to do next year. Ah, the old New Year's resolution. Yeah. And you know the one thing that I know to be true about New Year's resolutions? What's that? That they apply for maybe the first three days of the new year and then they are basically just vapor. Yeah. I think that's a pretty common phenomenon, isn't it, that people will make a New Year's resolution on January 1 and it's pretty well known that by the end of the month, at least if not sooner, they have absolutely gone out the window. Yeah, which sucks because we probably make these things with the best of intentions and uh, we just don't seem to have the staying power. And I guess I thought it might be a nice idea as our last show for the year to maybe think about why we have so much trouble sticking to our New Year's resolutions and if there's anything we can do to maybe help. You know, it's an interesting one because, in fact, if we look at the research, there's a whole bunch of information that would suggest that we actually have a tendency to stick with and commit to a claim that we make or a resolution. So, yeah, it's really odd that we don't when it comes to New Year's resolutions. So uh, is there a heuristic around this? Would you believe there is? (laughs) It's called the commitment bias. It's sometimes called the escalation of commitment, but I think the commitment bias is probably what we'll go with. Nice. Hey, you know what? That really sounds like something I would like to learn more about. Well, why don't we talk about it for the next 15 minutes or so? Well, I said I was going to, so we should totally do it. Let's do it. How does this work? Now that we've committed. So the commitment bias is the idea that individuals have a tendency to get locked into a course of action and that will actually persist with that action even in the face of negative consequences. So once we've made a commitment to something and particularly via a verbal or written declaration of our commitment, we're extremely likely to continue to act or behave in ways that are consistent with that. Yeah, I guess uh, we could think about this as like almost the double down bias, right? It's like, look, if I said I'm going to do it, then I'm going to do it. And if I said I'm going to do it in front of a whole bunch of people, then I'm like seriously, probably almost definitely likely to probably going to do it. Yeah, you know how we've talked about some heuristics where like it's called one thing and then a researcher comes along and calls it something else? Yeah. Like I think there's a big space for us to come in here and rename this the double down effect because that's what that's what it is. I like it. So much catchier. Yeah. Would you mind writing a research article on that? Yes, I would very much mind writing a research paper <laughs> on this, but maybe you write the research paper and I'll make an ad to tell people how good the research paper was. I'm not going to make any verbal or written declarations as to what I may or may not do at this point, especially in the context of this episode, but it might be an idea for for us to consider for future Mel and future Dan to think about. All right. Well, it's interesting that you're shirking your commitment, out loud commitments, given how prominent out loud public commitments seem to be in our society. And if I just think about people getting married or people being sworn in in court or people joining strange cults, you know, 
it seems that for anything uh, momentous in life, we have almost ritualized this idea that you make a commitment, you write it down, you say it out loud, you hopefully get a bunch of witnesses there. So there must be some good psychological reasoning behind this, surely. Sure. I mean, there are some good reasons why we would engage in you know, continued actions that reinforce our originally held beliefs. So once we've made a commitment to something, we're also then motivated to act in ways that support that. I mean, fundamentally, we all want to appear like rational people and as good decision makers. So if I commit to doing something, and especially if other people know about that commitment, then yeah, I want to follow through with that. I want people to see that I can be trusted to do what I say I will do. I want people to see that I'm predictable, that they can rely on me to do things. That's all going to serve me an advantage in a social system. Um, and you know what? The the interesting thing is, and the, the thing about the commitment bias that I find really interesting is the idea that even if my original commitment was not turning out well, I would pro well, I'm according to the research, I'd be much more likely to escalate my commitment, to overcommit, to double down even more so, even when things aren't working out so well. I'm so committed to looking like a trustworthy, reliable, predictable person that I'll keep doing it even if it's not looking good. Yeah, it's like being consistent is more important than being correct. 100%. It's kind of weird. Yep. So you mentioned research. I can only imagine somebody somewhere has done some sort of research to prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, of course they have or we wouldn't be here right i'll cite the original author of, of escalation to commitment who i believe was barry store back in 1976 however i'm not going to talk about his actual research paper because uh it would probably take up the rest of the time that we actually have to talk about this topic as a whole so what i'll do instead is let people know that we attribute this to barry store and his work in the late 70s and 80s but i'll give you a more uh say real life i guess example of it yeah i'm, I'm not gonna lie just so people know i've got your back like when we were prepping for this episode mel was trying to explain this piece of research to me and the fourth time she tried explaining it to me i was like i just don't think we can do this on the show it's it you know it's past midnight now and I still don't understand what this guy did. I'm sure it was great, but have you got anything a little more contemporary? So what do we got? So I'm going to give you an example, a much simpler example from the Behavioural Insights team in the UK. And what they were doing was working with a job centre organisation who would look to um, support job seekers to find work. Hey, Mel. Yep. Sorry, this, it's worth noting. So this is like not your boring, stuffy, mothball academic research. I think this is the first episode where we're talking about real in the wild in the field like live research right this is cool this is good this is mean this is gritty i mean yeah personally i think that what you call what did you call it mothy and something Mothball? else academic <laughs> research yeah, 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 yeah i mean yeah, yeah. i personally find that pretty cool but you know look you and i are different and that's but this is fine. real anyway let's talk about the real world what happened in essex eh <laughs> oh god that was terrible cops please fix that in post-production <laughs> Booyakasha, check this out, yo. No, I think that needs to in stay it. in there. Um, in it. <laughs> so in, I guess, the existing system that they had, what would happen is that advisors would ask the job seekers sort of retrospectively to um, list three job search activities that they'd done in the previous fortnight. 
Uh, so in order to, you know, to be eligible for the benefits, they need to sort of report back on what they've done over the last two weeks to try and find a job. Um, what the Behavioural Insights team suggested as a little nudge involving the commitment bias was that actually what they were going to do was that on the first day that of that uh, two-week period when um, when job seekers were eligible for the program, they actually had to lay out what they were going to do over the next two weeks to find a job. So they had to be quite specific and verbally declare what their actions would be in order to try and find a job over the next fortnight. And what they found was that the job seekers who had to make that commitment uh, at the start of the two-week period were 15 to 20% more likely than those in the original condition to be off the benefits 13 weeks after signing on. So they were able to get people actually back into work um, and um, and out of the job seeker program much more quickly just by making them commit verbally at the start of the period as opposed to retrospectively. That is so much more exciting than getting an academic paper published, I just got to say. And I just want to make sure I get this because, you know, I'm a little bit slow. I just want to make sure I got it. So the first condition, right, is you're unemployed, you go to the job seeker center and they're like, okay, it's been two weeks. If you want to get paid, you need to say that you've applied for at least three jobs. Did you apply for at least three jobs? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, of people probably yeah. said yes. Yeah. And then the second way, it's like, okay, in two weeks time, you need to have shown us that you've applied for at least three jobs. Let's make a plan about how we're going to do it. And are you really going to do it? And people said yes. And turns out the first group didn't do as well at actually getting jobs as the second group who made the commitment Correct. proactively, not retrospectively. That's it. Yeah. This proactive versus retrospective commitment is something that has just sort of been bubbling around in my head for a long time. When, when I started thinking about it was in, you know, at the end of every year we have to fill out our tax forms. Yeah. Which I will just first of all go on the record and say, my tax forms are squeaky clean. ATO, don't look here. There's seriously nothing to see. Keep, keep rolling. Um, but what I did think as the curious individual that I am is that what's kind of peculiar is that you go through this whole tax form situation where you fill in your income and all of your expenses and your deductions and how much you used your car and all of that other stuff. And then right at the end, it's like, oh, and by the way, was all of this stuff true? And you're like, yeah, yeah, of course it was true. And also there's no way I'm going back to reread all of this and double check it, but I know it's true because I just wrote it. And it just seems odd to me that they don't put the question at the start. Like at the start, if they said to you, all right, you're about to start your 2021 uh, tax lodgement. Can you just confirm that everything you're about to tell us is going to be true? And I can't help but think, based on, I guess, what we're about to learn about the commitment bias, that that would have a far better impact than asking people at the end when it's already all said and done. Well, that's what it's all about, really, right? It's making people have that public declaration up front that says, I'm going to do this because people are highly motivated to then do what they said they were going to do. So, yeah, it, it intuitively, makes a lot more sense. Um, I, I, I sort of think it's interesting to think about this idea that we persist with a course of action just because we're sort of locked into it, even when things are telling us that it's not really the right thing to do. It makes me think of, you know, a popular psychological concept that you and I have talked about um, off the podcast of grit, right? Mm. That that this idea that, you know, of, of grit and the idea that we should persevere and um, uh, and be persistent despite whatever happens just keep keep going and eventually the idea is that you will reach your goal and you and I have talked about how sometimes you know it actually might be more beneficial to actually cut your losses um you know in the context of things like a sunk cost or in this case the commitment bias where doing so may actually be leading you towards making bad decisions rather than 
you know, a better option that might be to actually choose an alternate course of action that could be more favorable. Hey, so, I mean, what seems kind of weird to me is that we do have this inherent bias. We have this wiring that means if we've made a commitment to something, we're more likely to do it. But we still seem to not be very good at keeping a lot of the commitments that we make. And so maybe what we have are some problems in the environment um, or some challenges in the environment that we could set up a different way to make people more likely to come good on the commitments that they desperately want to come good on anyway. Yeah. Well, I guess one of the things that makes people a lot more likely to stick through with a commitment is when they feel personally responsible for it, right? So if Mm. I'm entirely responsible for the thing that I'm committing to, then I'm more likely to stick with it and keep acting uh, in pursuit of it than if it's somebody else's decision. And this is where it's all about me as an individual trying to save face, right? And what we said before, that I'd rather be consistent necessarily than, than be right. Um, that I want to persist with an action because I have said I have committed, I'm a rational person and I don't actually want anybody to think of me that I may be not true to my word. That's an undesirable social trait. So I'm just going to, if, I, if I'm responsible for it, I'm going to stick with it usually no matter what and because I'm stubborn as hell. I mean, that's interesting because you think about this uh, in, a, in a business sense where you just realize at some point in your career that shared accountability is terrible. When you have a group of people responsible for delivering an outcome, it is far less likely that it's going to get delivered than if one person's head is on the chopping block and it's going to live or die with them. Yeah, I mean, that's that leads us to another psychological concept that has to do with the diffusion of responsibility, right? Where nobody actually takes responsibility. When somebody does, things will get done. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is if you are a person who wants to be better at sticking to their commitments, making it out loud, writing it down is a good place to start, but being solely responsible for the outcome is going to make you stick to it whether you want to or not. Yeah, I mean, and you can think of this in terms of goal setting, right? You know, a lot of the research that goes to goes towards goal setting and especially in the area I work in, in sports psychology, setting goals is a key factor that contributes to positive outcomes. And one of the things, you know, that, that they make sure that you do when it comes to goal setting is that you write it down. Even, you know, according to commitment bias, you can make a verbal or written declaration, but most of the time, um, at least when it comes to goal setting, a written declaration that is then put up somewhere where everybody can see it. So in sports teams, they might put that, put everybody's goals up on the wall in the change room, somewhere where it's frequently seen, means that people are more likely um, to abide by it and to act consistently, you know, in pursuit of their goals. Mm, that's super interesting. In, you know, in a corporate sense, if people have development plans and they're writing goals as part of them, then often those goals are kind of secret or maybe just between a person and their manager. And maybe there's something to be said for a sports club style wall of goals. Um, unless like your goal is to get rid of that bitch in finance or something similar. You probably don't want them to know that that's what you're scheming for. Um, I don't have, there's no bitches in finance. I'm sure they're all wonderful, but I'm just saying hyper that you could have a goal that is not, um, in line with what other people would like to see. But by and large, it might be good to have some sort of shared visibility over each other's goals because, you know, then you feel the pressure of not just lying to yourself but lying to everyone. (laughs) You could put it that way. How is this going to help brands? Uh, Well, there are so many ways that this can help brands Uh, because, I mean, really, as, as any brand, business, product, service, at the end of the day, the main thing we are asking for is some sort of a commitment from a person to exchange some time, money, effort for what we've got to offer. And so there's a few different ways in on this, and some of them almost seem contradictory, but just just roll with me on this. So the first thing you can do from a commitment bias perspective is you can charge exorbitantly high prices. 
Now, this sounds kind of weird, right? Let's say you sell pens and you sell a pen for 50 cents, right? And that pen kind of sucks. It is way easier for somebody to say, this 50 cent pen is actually a piece of crap. I never should have bought it. Than it is for them to say, this $150 pen that I bought is a piece of crap. I never should have bought it. So it's like by overpaying for something, you're almost making yourself have to like it um, compared to if you hadn't paid much for it at all. And, you know, as a cyclist, I certainly see this myself and all of my friends spend way too much money on overpriced cycling kit. And the fact that it is expensive means we have to tell everybody else that it's really good. Otherwise, we're just being idiots, which we're not. We're being very discerning consumers. So charging lots of money is great. Oh, so, but like as a as a marketer, basically what you're saying to the consumer is that, yeah, just price high because it's better for the brand. Is that what you're saying? No, no. What I'm saying is if people have paid more for the product or service, they will be more inclined to believe that it was good than if they have not paid very much for it. So if you have the opportunity to charge a lot for your overpriced cycling kit, which I do love a lot, um, just just do it and I'll tell myself it was worth it. That's okay. all I'm saying. Okay. So you're the, you're the consumer on this side. <laughs> just go with me. All right, we're moving on. We're moving on. We're moving on. We're moving on. Now, on the other side of the fence, there's also a really good argument to price cheaply, right? Not maybe for your core product, but the, the idea of giving people really cheap, really easy ways to start getting involved with your brand. And so, you know, in the app world, we might see this as freemium offerings where you have an ad supported version, which you then grow to love and then you want to pay the, get, get the paid one. Um, but we also see this with luxury goods where they might do what we call a diffusion line. So, you know, you've got the $7,000 handbag, which you probably can't buy right now, but there's $150 perfume or a $110 phone case or a key ring, you know, which lets you get in, be part of the brand, tell yourself that you're a Louis Vuitton kind of person or a Gucci kind of person or whatever it is, knowing that when you get a little bit more money to spend because you're moving up the, tra- the chain or you've got a bonus or whatever it is, you know, you're already aligned with that brand and maybe when you want to buy your next piece of luggage, that's where you're going to end up. Right. So you're talking about essentially setting the, setting the scene for people to make that initial commitment, knowing that once they've actually made a commitment, the commitment bias means that they're much more likely to stick with it and continue to behave in ways like purchase more goods associated with that initial commitment. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you see kind of weird things happen, you know, on on eBay, why you see a product that is clearly worth $1,000 start on a 99 cent no reserve auction because the person selling that thing knows if they can get people involved, bidding, making small commitments, that even when that item gets to a price that is probably above what that person was willing to pay, they kind of feel like they're committed to it. And if they didn't really want the item, why would they have just wasted all of this time bidding on it up until now? So they might as well keep going. Right. Another example of this, you know, getting small commitments early is, is maybe relevant for charities where it might seem like a pain in the ass to be getting really small donations from lots and lots of people. And there's an administrative overhead to that. But if you can get people, especially early on in their career, to get in the habit of donating to your charity organization, there's a good chance that as they progress in their careers and they start making more money and they start giving bigger donations, that they're going to want to be consistent with what they've supported up until now. And uh, there might be a better payoff in the long run if you can let them buy in early. Good. Have you got any more examples? Yeah. So there's, there's, so that's two. Price high, price low. You basically can't go wrong. Just don't price in the middle, right? The other two I really quickly want to give you. One is a personal experience uh, working with a university client a couple of years ago. And the way we really tried leading into this, which was quite successful was I say this it sounds dodgy but it's really not dodgy it's it's the idea of trying to help people realize that the thing we're asking them to do is the thing they always wanted right 
So if like we were trying to promote a nursing course, and so one thing you can do is you can run advertising to tell people to choose nursing. Another thing you can do is you can run ads to remind people that nursing has already chosen them, you know, to basically help them recall the memories of the, the, the school playground, you know, where they were always the kid that ran to the hurt kid. You know, they were always the person that was going for help and that being a nurse or being a teacher or being a whatever um, vocation we were trying to promote had always been within them. And coming and studying this course at this institution was just meeting a commitment that they had already made for themselves at a time when they hadn't even realized that that's what they were doing. Right. So like you're trying to draw out like a subconscious commitment or a subconscious way of behaving that is then consistent with further learning in that way. Exactly. And you know, you're telling people like, you know, you, you've always told yourself this is the year you were going to get fit. You know, you always told yourself this was the year you were going to learn Spanish. So <laughs> this is the perfect time to do our Spanish-based fitness course, for, for example. You know, sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, I don't like psychologists. They're deceptive or they're sneaky. But you marketers, you're worse. No, well, we just put it out there. And if you didn't always think you were going to be a nurse, then you'll just ignore us. Like you ignore the other 10,000 ads you see today. But if something in you as a 12-year-old was like, I really like helping sick people, we're going to wake it up and make sure you come and enroll with us. So, so one is price high, one is price low, one is help people realize that the thing you want them to do is the thing they always wanted to do anyway. And we're just really here to help you achieve all that you can be as marketers. That's, that's all I ask in life. Just helping people reach their potential. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> There are a hand-picked mix of product and services sold by my clients. Um, and really the, the last one on this is, is something called the yes set. And this is a, a pretty well-worn technique from salespeople. Uh, a lot of agencies use this as well. And it's, it's the idea of getting people to say yes a whole bunch of times, you know, to get incremental yeses as you lead up to the real thing you actually want them to say yes to. So, you know, in a very um, B2C sense, if you walk into you know, a store to buy a new TV, the person working there, before they take you to the TVs, they might have a little chat and they might say things to you like, it's always nice to be able to sit down and relax and enjoy a good movie from time to time, right? Yes. I thought so. All right. And when you're enjoying a movie, like the thing that really makes a difference is you, you want a big screen and you want really vibrant color, right? Because that's what makes it an outstanding experience, right? Oh, yeah. Exactly. And you know what? While the, the vision is really important, the thing that really steps it up to a cinema level experience, right? We got We got to have the sound. We got to have the pumping sound, right? Oh yes. Yeah, exactly. So you know what? I've got some TVs to show you, and and guess what features those TVs are going to have, right? They're going to be big, and they're going to be colorful, and they're going to have integrated sound because you've already just said yes to all this stuff, and it's very hard for you to now say, actually, no, I don't want that. I want the small TV with a shitty color and no sound. Yes, give me the biggest, most you... brightest, loudest exactly. TV in the store. Exactly. Got me. <laughs> And one funny little technique um, that you know I've just found in my decade and a half of, of pitching is when you meet a client and they're giving you a brief that you're then going to come back and present on. And often you you don't know how to present the agency. You know, as say 45 people, are we big or are we small? Well, it kind of depends on who we're pitching against. And so one of the things I've found is often you can ask a prospective client what they're looking for in a partner beyond delivery of the thing that they've briefed you. So they're like, oh, we want to see three ideas for a new TV commercial. And you go, cool, cool. There's lots of agencies that can give you a new TV commercial. Beyond that, what else are you looking for? And what is incredible is the clients will tell you. They'll tell you, do they want uh, agencies with high velocity and agility and fast pace and they just want to see ideas and energy? Or are they a client that says, 
They really want to see the thinking. They want it stepped out. They want it methodical. They want to see all the research. You know, and there's no right or wrong answer. But what what I find amazing is if you ask a client, they'll tell you. And then when you come back and present, you can present in exactly the manner that they've said they want to see it. And they almost have no choice but to be consistent with what they've told you they were looking for. Yeah, you guys are definitely more sneaky than psychologists. Please don't don't use that if you're pitching against me, Dr. Mel. <laughs> All right. So have we have we covered all of the commitment bias? Yeah, I feel like we we said we would and then we did and and we've gone full circle. Wow. So let's wrap it up. So the commitment bias is the idea that individuals have a tendency to get locked into a course of action. So once we say we're going to do something, we are very likely to then act in ways that are consistent with that. In terms of New Year's resolutions, one thing that you can do to make sure if you really want to commit to it is actually not just say what you're going to do, but also write down why you want that. Why do you want to do it? So almost write a defense for it. Um, that's going to enhance your commitment to the cause. Right. And and the way I can help you make your New Year's resolutions is number one, go and buy something really expensive. Right. <laughs> if you decide you're going to sign up to gym this year, sign up to a really expensive gym and you'll just force yourself to go, maybe. Alternatively, do something really cheap just to start getting used to it, right? And get that buy-in. The third thing you can do is think about how this was always your destiny. And every year you've told yourself that you were going to get fit and this is the year you're absolutely going to do it. And if none of that works, ask yourself a list of questions that all end with yes, where the last question is, so are we going to go to gym today? And make sure that whatever it is that you commit to, that you print it out, put it up on the fridge, tell everybody about it as much as possible so that everybody else keeps you accountable as well. Oh yeah, totally do that. Take the pledge post it to social media and so that when you see people out they're going to ask you hey how's your how's gym going and you want to be able to say oh yeah it's going well <laughs> it's great hey so Mel, just before we wrap this up i have a couple of very quick questions for you number one um are you enjoying recording these podcasts with me yeah i knew you were and uh are you enjoying the fact that we're really getting a good level of cadence now like as they're coming out people are loving them feels yeah, good yeah that that part's good yeah, so wouldn't it be good if next year we were actually able to get more of these out than we did this year because, you know, it's good for everybody. Yeah. Come on. We didn't do that many this year. It would be much better if we did more next year. So I think yeah. uh, how would you feel about recording our next episode early in the new year? Like, let's do it. Let's do it before the end of January. I see what you've done, you sneaky yes. marketer. <laughs> we're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. I'm going to buy you a new microphone. Ooh, You're going to love it. Now it's going to be really expensive. Yes. All right, so I think that's it. Commitment bias, say it and then do it. I think that's a wrap on commitment bias. I think it's a wrap on 2020 for us. I know, say it and then do it. This could have been like a 15 second episode. Anyway, that is a wrap on 2020. Mel, you've been a wonderful, wonderful co-host. Thank you for uh, enduring me for another 12 months. Um, I just want to note that you just verbally declared that and publicly. Uh, that doesn't yeah. happen when we're not recording. But yeah, thanks, Dan. That's really lovely. You've been good too. I was going to say, don't forget the reciprocity bias. Make sure you say something <laughs> nice about me too. All right, hey, if you guys want to find us, we're on the internet. You know what to do. Otherwise, uh, we'll be back for a bigger and better 2021. See you then. Bye.